Weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. Here's your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thank you for joining me. What is it we love about shock entertainment? What makes us so curious about those who are odd or disfigured? I'm talking about freak shows. You know, the circus sideshow acts that featured live human oddities that claim to defy science or nature? Like the two-headed baby, the elephant boy, or featured performers like fire breathers, sword swallowers, and even the human blockhead. This live entertainment drew crowds like a moth to a flame. Hurry, hurry, step this way, the strangest sights on the island. Freaks from the four corners of the world. What you nickels, one dime, a tenth part of a dollar. We've got the show if you've got the dime. It's just starting. Were these attractions a way for those once outcasts from mainstream society to make a living? Or was it outright exploitation? Here in Florida, off Highway 41, just 10 miles south of Tampa, is Gibsonton, also known as Gibtown, Showtown, or even Freaktown. That's because it was the final refuge for America's fading carnival culture. Circus sideshow performers wintered here during the off-season. I sat down with SoFlo Weird contributor Michelle McCardle to discuss Gibtown, once dubbed the strangest town in America. Welcome, Michelle. It's always good to have you on to share these freaky stories. We're talking about Gibtown, and in its heyday, there were upwards of 14,900 people residing there, and mostly they were circus sideshow performers. Now, these performers come like in three categories. There's the self-made, you know, like the tattooed lady. There are working acts like the sword swallowers and the fire breathers and the knife throwers. And then there are those that are natural born. There was Betty Lou Williams, who had a baby sister growing out of her abdomen. Priscilla, the monkey girl who would elope with the alligator boy, who had the strange skin condition, making his skin like reptilian. And you could also meet Lobster Boy, who only had two fingers on each hand. So this is where our story kind of takes that dark turn in Gibtown. So, Michelle, explain who Grady Styles is. That's who Lobster Boy is. Explain who he is and what kind of condition that he suffers from. So the condition is called ectrodactyl. What it is, it's like having a cleft hand or foot. So it comes from the word ectroma, if I'm saying that correctly, which is abortion, and dactylios, which is finger. So it's either the dis deficiency or the absence of one or more of your central digits. So the ones that are in the middle of your hand or your foot, sometimes it's referred to as split hand, split foot malformation. And Grady Styles comes from a long line of ectrodactyls all the way back to 1840. He's had several generations, it, in fact, six generations of ancestors who were also inflicted with the condition. So basically, it kind of just made his hands look like pinchers, which is why he got the, uh, the name Lobster Boy. And then his feet below the knees were malformed, and so they were never really in use. He was mostly confined to a wheelchair, and he was able to get around using very well-defined upper body strength. He was He was very strong in his arms, through his chest and shoulders, and he was able to use that to 
get around. So yes, Grady suffered um, a long history of this. And from what I understand, his father, who also had the condition, worked in the carnival sideshows. And Grady himself was brought into that world at age seven and also performed in the sideshows. Now, what about Grady's children? So Grady had three children, two of which had inherited the condition. And his daughter did not have the condition, Donna. They performed as well on stage with him. His wife, the mother of his children, Mary Teresa, she was not malformed in any way. She, or just, you know, a typical body where she didn't have any sort of conditions that made her stick out or, um, you know, unusual from the people around her. She was actually working in the carnival circuit, and that's how she met Grady. And from what I understand, reading some articles and, and hearing some interviews, is that Mary said he, he was very sweet in the beginning, and they had a pretty good relationship. Then something took a turn. So one thing that you have to remember is that a lot of this was taking place in the late 60s, early 70s, and there wasn't a lot of work for people with these conditions. So what they would do is they would go on these freak shows, these carnival circuits, and that was a way that they could make money and kind of profit off of their condition. But unfortunately, I would say maybe 40% of the people that are witnessing this are genuinely curious and interested in the condition and, and want to see it. And it's, it's not their typical um, thing that they would go out and they would see. And, you know, it's, it's sheer curiosity. The other 60%, however, really were there and they were ridiculing, making fun of, um, you know, participating in a lot of othering and just making these people feel so small. So Grady Styles, having started that at age seven, enduring just years and years of ridicule. Some people, you know, they take their condition and they're better in spite of it. Grady went the other direction. He was bitter, resentful, um, and he really kind of turned more towards drinking. And he was a very angry alcoholic, abusive. He would often hit Mary Teresa um, or Mary Styles at this point. He did some really awful things to her. Well, one of the things that, that he did to her that kind of made it the last straw for her, she did try to get away from him. He, and there's a warning here, this gets pretty graphic, but he was mad that she had an IUD, a birth control device, and he actually reported trying to rip it out of her. And so she decided that's it. This is the last straw. I'm leaving. And in 1973, she divorced Grady. She went on to live her life. Um, she married uh, the world's smallest man, Harry Glenn Newman, who at that size was probably twice the man Grady Styles was. And they had a, a pretty happy life together. She definitely um, had a type, had a, though, didn't she? She definitely had a type. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely can't go with your typical guy. She's got to have somebody who's who's different. But unfortunately, and we're not really sure why, but she winds up divorcing Harry in 1987 and remarrying 
Styles in 88. Supposedly, he had gone back to her. I've stopped drinking. A second uh, underlying theory that people think that or was speculated that maybe he was still abusing the children in her absence. And she thought that, you know, by remarrying him, she could be closer to them and she could maybe interfere and stop that abuse. And that brings me to another horrible, twisted tale of Gary Styles, the Lobster Boy, which is something that happened while Mary Teresa was away, and that was the case of Donna and Jacqueline. I told you earlier that he had a daughter who was not affected by ectrodactyl. This was Donna, and she was in love with a man named Jack Lane. Unfortunately, her father was very much opposed to Donna and Jack. And Donna really wanted to marry Jack. She felt like this was a way to get away from her father, to live a normal life, to be happy. And she wasn't really concerned whether or not her father approved. Grady was very upset by this because he wanted control of his daughter. He didn't want to share his daughter with anybody. He had on several occasions told Donna, I'm going to kill him. And had threatened her on multiple occasions. At one point, they mentioned going to a pawn shop, and he picked up a gun and said, I'm going to use this gun to kill Jack. I I also feel by her proclaiming to her father that I'm going to marry him, you know, whether you agree or not, or like it or not, probably sent him into another rage. Yeah. Two things that I've read here, you know, with tales like this, There's a lot of different sides to the story, speculations about what happened or why, but there are certain details that always line up. So one of the things was there was some kind of arrangement for Jack to meet with Grady in person before the marriage. Maybe somehow Jack had gotten the inclination that Grady was going to give them a blessing. Another story that I had read was it was as simple as Donna and Jack coming home and the wheelchair was nowhere to be seen. So Donna leaves the house to go look for the wheelchair and Grady and Jack are left alone together. So I'm not really sure how exactly Jack and Grady wound up getting left alone together, but the night before the wedding, either way, you have Jack, you have Grady, and they're in this trailer together. And Grady reaches under a couch cushion and he pulls out the same gun that he had gotten in the pawn shop. He points it at Jack and he shoots him in the chest. Jack was still able to move, so he turns around and he tries to run out of the trailer, and Grady lifts the gun again and shoots him in the back, which causes him to stumble out of the trailer, where Donna can see him, and she runs to him, holds him, and he says, he shot me. Now, this part is really chilling, and it's something that is said in multiple reports across the board was that she looked up at her father who smiled coldly at her and said I told you I would kill him when he goes on trial he says it's self-defense obviously it's not self-defense if Don is saying I told you I would kill him were the words out of his mouth but according to the jury they see this man he's weeping he's crying for sympathy the world doesn't understand me I'm this person who's different than everybody. I get ridiculed. I get cast out. You know, I'm this poor, tortured soul, right? Mm -hmm. So they get this from him and they decide 
to kind of lighten the sentence a little bit. It's a third degree murder. And they decide that since he has this malformity that they couldn't accommodate for him in the prison. I don't know what he would need that would be special. But anyway, he winds up getting away with 15 years on parole, Ugh, basically. For murder and not even yeah. stepping into a prison. It wasn't even in prison. He just gets 15 years of a slap on the wrist. So are you um, saying this happens while Mary is not with him, right? Like Mary is married to the other guy and this happened in between, right? And then afterwards, Mary remarries him? Yeah, she does. I personally have no idea why. I know that there was this supposed story that he gave her that he had quit drinking, that he was a better man. My guess was that the theory that people had that she thought that she would be protecting her children by going back to him and being closer to them was what kind of motivated her. I think that she probably was worried that her being away with Harry, doing her own thing, the the children were kind of just left to their own devices. So she she gets back together with him, but she does realize that something has to be done about Grady. So what she does is she gives her son, Harry Newman Jr., $1,500, and she says, basically, get rid of him. So Harry hands off this money to a neighbor called Chris Wyant. And Chris Wyant was a worker at the circus. He takes the money. He immediately gets a gun, goes over to Grady's trailer, sees him sitting in his chair, in his underwear, watching some TV, sticks the gun right through the window, and just pow, just takes him out. And of course, it wasn't that much longer until they find out the whole situation that happened with Mary and Chris and Harry, and they all go on trial. So a lot of people on trial are asking Mary, you know, the same question, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you just try to get away from him? What caused you to think that the ultimate solution was outright murder? Mary's defense was that even if she ran from Grady, that she couldn't hide because her family stood out. She's got a bunch of, you know, ectrodactyl children. She's got a bunch of lobster kids. They're clearly the the lobster boy family. She was worried that if she ran, that Grady would just follow her. She wound up getting the lesser of the sentences, a little bit of sympathy for the jury since she had a long history of being abused. Her charge was reduced and she was found guilty of conspiracy to commit first degree murder and manslaughter with a firearm. And that gave her 12 years in prison. And then Harry Glenn Newman Jr., he was charged with first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years. He may have received a reduction in the sentence. It was the fact that he hired a hitman that bumped that charge up. And then Chris was charged with second-degree murder, and he was sentenced to 27 years in prison. So actually, Harry wound up getting the brunt of most of the sentencing, he, he kind of got the worst punishment of the three of them. Yeah. The other thing I want to note is at this point, when Grady did die, he was so pretty much hated by the community so much that hardly anybody even showed up at his funeral and no one even volunteered to be his pallbearers. No, I think they said just like maybe 10 people showed up. 
yeah. maybe including Grady and the and the preacher. It was like nobody really showed up. Everybody thought that this guy was just the worst. Even before all of this, you know, terrible deaths and murders and things went down, people in the carnival circuit were saying that he was not a pleasant man to be around. And he just wreaked havoc on his whole family and his adult children have struggled through that. But I read something recently where Grady Stiles III has found love and he is with the bearded lady, Jessa Olmstead, and they actually work at the Venice Beach Freak Show in Los Angeles. I was watching something online and they actually, the people from the Freak Show, the producers or whatever, got together because Grady Stiles and his sister hadn't talked in so long, like years. And actually they brought them together to try to break that barrier. And so I thought that was good at the end. I mean, who knows? It's a reality show. So I don't know if they set that up or whatever, but it was kind of nice that they actually came together. It just abuse really has this incredible lasting effect. Unless you deal with it and face it, it just sticks with you. Yeah. Aside from the fact that the American Disability Act kind of brought it to light that these freak shows ostracize and they kind of make these people out like they're somehow different. I mean, technically they're different in the sense that they are physically different than the average person. It makes them feel excluded from regular society. Aside from that, all of this drama, all of this bad press just kind of led to the fall of Gibtown. It would be a cool place to go and it's probably and just see people that are different all living together and yeah but um, it was it was never really meant to be tourist attraction it was really meant to be like a little sanctuary for these people where they could walk freely in the community without being looked at or stared or thought of as weird so yeah i don't think people would necessarily go there and everything seems like a show to someone who's different like they were even saying the trial seemed kind of like a show, you know, like they had the fat lady and she got stuck in the chair and everybody was staring at her. She can't get out of it. And like right. they had the bearded lady take the stand and, you know, it's hard for them to just participate in normal society without becoming this person that gets stared at. And it was really... I think hard for them and they just wanted a place where they could go and they could be around people who are just like them. Exactly. That's that's why I say that, because I mean, if you think about it, if you're on the road so many months out of the year and you're doing show after show after show and everybody's coming to look at you, whether it's for sheer curiosity or like you said, some of them ridiculed, it was their time to have their own time to themselves when they went back to Gibson Town. Yeah. I don't know what's in Gibson Town now. I do know that there's a museum. There is the International Independent Showman's Museum, which has two floors of antique circus equipment, printed materials, detailed exhibits that pretty much tells the whole carnival story, a century of carnival experiences, which to me, Michelle, you know what that says? That says me and you need to make a trip over there and, and kind of check it out. Well, thank you, Michelle, for bringing this story to our audience. You're welcome. That was SoFlo Weird contributor Michelle McArdle talking about Gibtown and its most infamous resident, Grady Stiles, also known as the Lobster Boy. Next, we feature a wise guy. Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Not that kind of wise guy. A wise wizard who was delightfully scary in his vaudeville-esque live horror shows. His name? Harry Wise, 
and Charlie Carlson, Florida's master of the weird, was his biographer and close friend. This is from the pages of his book, Weird Florida. The Wizard of Central Florida There is a small frame house on 6th Street in Sanford that looks like an ordinary house unless you know the inside secret. This is the domain of Wise the Wizard, a magician who can change a live rabbit into a dog or pull a city block long string of silk scarves from an empty box. Now, if that doesn't qualify as a wizard, then we don't know what does. But please don't ask for the secret of how it's done, or you might feel the wrath of the wizard's wand. The wand belongs to Harry Wise, a magician who once entertained thousands on theater stages across America and Canada. The great Harry Wise is more than just a magician. He is also America's lost Ghostmaster. What's a Ghostmaster, you ask? Well, first you'll need to know about the old ghost shows. These were live horror shows that were presented from the 1920s through the 1960s on movie theater stages, usually in conjunction with midnight shows that featured a scary movie. They always opened with a little bit of magic and featured various illusions, pseudo-hypnotic acts, a cast of monsters roaming through the audience, and, in the middle of the show, a total blackout of the theater, (gasps) leaving the audience squealing in the dark. Producers of these fright fests were called Ghostmasters. Among the most famous ghost shows was Dr. Jekyll's Weird Show, and the infamous Dr. Jekyll was none other than the great Harry Wise, often referred to as the Master of Horror. Wise played his last live ghost show in the 1970s in Daytona and New Smyrna Beach, making him the last in the nation to produce a true ghost show in the old style. When movie theaters began eliminating stages, ghost shows and other live acts faded into showbiz history. Harry Wise began his entertainment career at age 18 when he put on a magic show for the local grammar school, for which he was paid $25. The next night, he was on the stage of Sanford's historic Ritz Theater. That was Halloween night, recalled Wise. I actually launched my stage career on Halloween night. His big break came when he joined the famous Johnny Cates Ghost Show out of Houston, Texas. In this show, Wise played the Frankenstein monster on stages all across the country. In 1959, Wise formed his Dr. Jekyll's Weird Show, based in Florida, and took it on the road spreading his ghoulish mayhem up the West Coast, through the Midwestern states, Canada, and down the eastern seaboard to almost every movie house in Florida. The show featured two blackouts of the theater, throwing snakes into the audience, that's rubber ones, and Dr. Jekyll always managed to chop off a fan's head with his infamous guillotine. Old newspaper articles have referred to his show as the show with a thousand horrors, so scary you'll have nightmares for a week. This kind of press was just the ticket for a show. During the 1970s, Wise performed in both nightclubs and theaters under varied monikers. Dark Veil, Dark Veil, Mr. Magic, Dr. Jekyll, and Wise the Wizard. He shed all those titles in 1980 to become Hans Vogler, world-famous mentalist. 
He toured college campuses and clubs, mesmerizing fans who, recounts Wise, really thought I could read their minds. It was a real study in like being a stage magician. But after a year of reading minds, Hans Vogler became Harry Wise again. Wise went beyond being a showman extraordinaire. He is also a dedicated humanitarian. While he is quick to boast about the years he spent in entertainment, he seldom mentions his contributions to good causes. He once raised enough money to get operations for 22 kids at the Harry Anna Crippled Children's Home. His efforts also purchased the first tanker truck for the Forest City Volunteer Fire Department. When a volunteer department in Orange County needed a Jaws of Life, Wise put on a show that raised enough money to buy one. And when financial troubles were about to close a home for wayward girls in Brevard County, he raised funds through his magic to save the home. Maybe this is the stuff that separates real wizards from everyday magicians. In 1982, Wise did something that he had wanted to do since he was 10 years old. He joined the circus. It was my lifelong fantasy, exclaimed Wise. I just had to get it out of my system. And so he did. During the 1980s, he toured as a ringmaster for a total of four different circuses before returning to the stage with his big two-hour magic show. Harry Wise admits that most of my illusions are a trick, but noted the word most. Does that mean that some of them are real magic? His response is, not actually magic as you think. There's a lot we don't understand about the physics of the universe, and some secrets are best left alone for now. That would sound like a magician trying to create a little mystery, if not for what we learned from one of Wise's former stagemen. The rumor is that the great Wise has a secret tucked away in three safety deposit boxes in an undisclosed bank. It is so guarded that the first two boxes each contain a key to a third box in a bank out of state. It would take two people with two different keys to open that box. The secret is supposed to be instructions for something perhaps a grand magic trick, or a secret that the magician has stumbled upon during his travels? Or is it just an ongoing act? Wizards create illusions after all. Wise's life in show business is reflected in a permanent exhibit at the City of Sanford Museum. Yet the most amazing thing about Harry is not open to the public. It is his house, which is indeed a wizard's abode, filled with over 50 years' worth of magic and fantasy. Mystery literally permeates the air in this weird dwelling, an archive filled with stage props, talking skulls, top hats, magic wands, and theater posters from hundreds of performances with hardly enough room to walk or sit. Someone else might see it as a mystical time machine of sorts, guarded by unseen unicorns, where the past and future are rolled into one. Or maybe the past is really the present, or whatever you want it to be. From the outside, this strange dwelling looks like any ordinary house on 6th Street. Or is that an illusion as well? Remember, this is the house of a wizard. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. If you want more strange Florida stories, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us on Facebook and Instagram. And please, join our SoFlow Weirdos Facebook group, where we share Florida's dubious tales every week. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlow Weird Show. 
Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson, and Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance. We'd also like to give a shout out to my sister, number one fan, and SoFlo supporter, Lisa Lorenzo. If you wish to support this podcast in our freakish mission to entertain your insatiable appetite for weird stories, then go to our website, pick up some SoFlo swag, or buy us a coffee, and we'll give you a shout out too. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody.